Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. The church guys wanted Hawaii, and they took it. The rich guys wanted Hawaii, and they took it. The military guys wanted Hawaii, and they took it. The end. Let's talk about Queen Liliuokalani. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1891, Carnegie Hall opened in New York, and the Wrigley Company was founded in Chicago. U.S. Congress created the Court of Appeals. John Smith patented the cork board, and American Express issued the first traveler's checks. London and Paris were first connected by telephone. Queen Victoria was ruling in the United Kingdom, and John Abbott became the third prime minister of Canada. Zora Neale Hurston and Fanny Bryce were both born. Phineas T. Barnum and Herman Melville both died. And on January 29, 1891, Queen Liliuokalani ascended the throne and became Hawaii's last monarch. Hello, and welcome to the show. A quick word on pronunciation. <laughs> We're going to do our best, and we have received counsel in pronunciations of Hawaiian names, but the errors are our own, and we, as usual, will try to pronounce the names accurately while not venturing into Saturday Night Live tornado burrito territory, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Lili Ululoku Walanya Kamakaeha was born on September 2nd, 1838, to High Chief Caesar Kapaakea and High Chiefess Keo Hokalohe. Her name has meaning, as traditionally, children were named after a significant event or a flower that was blooming at the time of their birth. She was actually named, as is another tradition, by the half-sister of the current king, who was King Kamehameha III. At that particular moment, that half-sister named Elizabeth was suffering from an eye infection, <laughs> and she decided to use that as the timestamp for Liliu's birth. So literally, her name means smarting, tearful, burning pain, sore eyes. Not good. <laughs> it sounds so pretty. And, and her name is Liliu, L-I-L-I-U. It's so pretty. <laughs> Man. So she was baptized with an English name, which is Lydia, but we're not going to use that if that's okay with everybody. Liliu's parents were both high-ranking, but this is where we usually talk about their backgrounds. They were only her birth parents. There was a tradition in Hawaii called Hanai, and what it was, it was an adoption of sorts. But there's nuances to it that aren't part of our current adoption system. Somebody would give their newborn child to a relative as an honor, and that child would become adopted by their Hanai parents. They were treated as their children, but they still had their blood parents. They still had a relationship of sorts with them. I thought it was a really pretty tradition, quite honestly. It was kind of a communal thing. You know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? So Hanai was kind of an offshoot of that particular village situation. Well, and in baby Lilihu's case, some very high-ranking nobles indeed became her mother and father. Paki, who was an advisor to King Kamehameha III, became her papa. And Konia, who was a granddaughter of the great Kamehameha I. This is a pretty big step. And I kind of likened it, although it's not exact in any way, kind of like an earl's daughter being raised by a royal duke's household, kind of, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, yes, she was a noblewoman, but 
an even higher rank is where she has stepped into, kind of. Right. Hawaii had received its first settlement of Christian missionaries about 18 years before baby Lily, who was born. And by now, its influence had already made its way into fashion and um, literacy and, of course, religious practices. King Kamehameha II had not converted to Christianity himself. He had five wives and he didn't wish to give four of them up and he liked the taste of alcohol and he was not willing to give that up, but he did allow the missionaries to set up shop, which was pretty big of him, given that the first person they saw that was white, that arrangement did not end up so well. (laughs) English explorer Captain James Cook had seen Hawaii for the first time in 1768. He came back and visited. He didn't discover it because there was already people living there. Amazing. The first time he came back, there was a nice arrangement. They exchanged goods for services. They got along well. The second time they came back, it didn't turn out as nicely. Captain Cook ended up dead. Hawaiians ended up dead. His sailors ended up dead. And whoever was living got onto the boats and got the heck out of Hawaii. But see, now they were on the map. Hmm. Right. And actually, on one of those boats was a man who went to New England, was educated at Yale and told his church, hey, if you want to save some people, there's a bunch of people on this island in the Pacific that need saving. And he kind of got the ball rolling on these this group of 14 missionaries that went from New England to Hawaii. And I don't want to be the harbinger of doom, but they are the harbingers of doom. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the thing that struck me the most is that they didn't um, dress down at all. Like they still had their heavy clothes on and they had all the native Hawaiian women kind of adapt to that fashion, which was crazy to me. Because that's what you really need in the tropics is seven petticoats and a three piece suit. That's what you really need. <laughs> but the, you you keep forgetting that these are Victorians. We talked about this during the Laura Ingalls Wilder podcast, too. It's like we're haying in full Victorian high necked long sleeve dress. Well, evidently, some of the missionaries couldn't even look when they got off the boat because there was so much nudity and shirtlessness and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, this isn't your culture. You're not the boss of them, but I don't know. Somehow they brought it to bear. Um, The old ways were starting to crack. King Kamehameha II's mother had broken some taboos and started the ball rolling on a little bit of a dissolution of the old religious ways. And man, did these guys come in right at a God power vacuum. And they walked right into it. Yeah. So back to Lydia as she was called by the Christian missionaries, that we will not call her. She was baptized Lydia. All of these Hawaiian princes and nobles after the missionaries came had, quote, an English name in addition to their Hawaiian name. And um, some of them went by these English names and some of them went by their Hawaiian names. So we will try to respect their choices there. (laughs) It's a little confusing, but (laughs) little Liliu suffered an accident. I want to say it's an accident. She was climbing a vine and fell off a balcony. So obviously the nanny is not really paying attention. Um, She fell from a great height and broke her leg. And so she was kind of limping for the rest of her life based on this childhood accident. Perhaps in an unrelated incident, at the age of only four, Liliu was sent to boarding school. I'm sure they're not related (laughs) at all. King Kamehameha III had, with the missionaries, established a royal school for the heirs 
to the throne. It was kind of like a way to teach the Hawaiian children how to interact with the white people that were now living amongst them and people in the whole world so that they could go out beyond the shores of Hawaii and represent the country. I have to tell you, that was pretty wise. That was pretty wise. Now, it wasn't a big school. There were only 16 royal children. These are um, the criteria for entry was, do you have a claim to the throne of Hawaii? Like all the royal cousins were at this school, regardless of age, really. I think they went from four to 20. They did. And it was run by two missionaries. So it wasn't even run with Hawaiian traditions at all. Now, these kids lived there. They were allowed to go home on an occasional Sunday and occasionally for vacations. But what they were doing is living between two cultures. You know, when they were at school, they were living in a very anglicized culture. And then when they went home, they were living in the traditions of the Hawaiians, which was, I guess, the goal of the school, right? I actually think it was just perfect to be able to kind of go between Um, I think it's a little bit stressful. Almost any immigrant child whose parents don't speak the language will tell you that's probably the most stressful position to be in. So Mm -hmm. these little ambassadors to a different world were. So what were they taught? The basics? Yes. Music? Yes. That's very Victorian. Um, Also geography and history. Most of all, of course, the principles of Christianity and what they called deportment. <laughs> they were in, on a mission to civilize these people, which, of course, we know is super racist, I do believe. <laughs> I do agree. In the actual school building, there was a, uh, if you think of the building as like a barn, it was like the hayloft. It was the upper floor of it. They set it up and they called it the Boston Room. And they furnished it with the nicest furniture all anyone that came to the island had to make it as um proper as possible. And what the kids learned there was things like how to drink tea and how to talk and how to be a polite citizen in another country. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, missionaries did do a very amazing thing. I like kind of can't even believe they did this in such a short time period. The Hawaiian language was an oral tradition. It was not a written language. And in the space of just under two decades, they had created a written language and translated the Bible into Hawaiian. I I think that is quite amazing, among other works, you know, but definitely the Bible was number one on their list. And Hawaii had a higher literacy rate than mainland America by this point. Yeah, isn't that crazy? You know where they kind of had a little bit of a head start because that man that, you know, fled and then sent the missionaries. He started writing out the Hawaiian language. This guy was brilliant. Uh, So that when the missionaries went, they kind of had something to go on, and he had translated a book of prayer into um, a phonetic language Mm -hmm. of Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. So they had something going in, but you're right. I mean, to take that in such a short period of time and spread it through all the islands is remarkable. Now, the school day-to-day does seem like something out of Dickens, like um, (laughs) a very harsh environment full of punishment. Well, that that is the boarding school way. I mean, Jane Eyre. Lowood School. Same situation. Um, Lily U remembers a lot of being sent to bed without supper, a lot of spankings, and luckily no one could freeze to death because <laughs> even if they refuse to light a fire in your fireplace, I have to tell you the climate in Hawaii, the weatherman has got the easiest job. It's like 80, 80, 80, <laughs> 80. It's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like the guy got an F and gets the reward going to be the weatherman in Hawaii. So nobody is freezing to death. So hooray. But just like Lowood School, an epidemic broke out. Measles, in this case, um, swept through Hawaii and killed some students, including one of Liliu's little sisters. Native Hawaiians, sometimes still called the Sandwich Islanders, um, had no immunity to plenty of diseases, and everyone that came gave them the gift of something else. Smallpox being the most famous, perhaps, but I don't want people to forget that measles can kill. When old Captain Cook showed up, there were 300,000 Native Islanders. And now, 75 years later, we are down to 71,000. This is not a joke. Mm -mm. Um, they are being decimated by disease. Oh, my goodness. Well, when Liliu was only about five, Hawaii was actually taken over by some overreaching British businessmen and seamen, if you can believe that. <laughs> it's like the nerve, the nerve. For about five months, the British flag flew over Hawaii. Liliu remembers that the bigger boys in her school were plotting revenge. So they have a super bad feeling about the British at this point, um, calling them lobster backs and this and that. And the king gave them a speech, and he said, and I quote, Hear ye, I make known to you that I am in perplexity by reason of difficulties into which I have been brought without cause. Therefore, I've given away the life of our land, but my rule over you, my people, will continue, for I have hope that the life of our land will be restored. He had sent an American to Britain to plead his case, and Britain's officers are like, what happened? They did what? <laughs> what? No, no, no. Put their flag back. Are you crazy? Or are you mad? You know, like, I don't think so. And so Britain backed them up and like, well, okay, crisis averted. But the leaders of Hawaii sort of knew this was just the opening scene in a little war. They knew they were a little country. They knew that big forces like America and Britain were kind of salivating. They had referred to themselves as being about to be gobbled up by bigger powers. Even as far back as this, they kind of knew the seeds had been planted, that they were a ripe plum for the picking. <laughs> when Liliu was about 10, the school was relocated and opened up to missionaries' children and some other respectable white citizens' children under new management. Hooray! That was a relief. That was a relief. And, but it was no longer a boarding school. Um, so Liliu got to live with her foster parents and her foster sister, Bernice Poahi. She was actually their biological child. Well, hooray for family life. And for social life, their home was a hub for the who's who among the young people of the upper class. Um, it was a house in Honolulu called Haleakala. Now, I, I want to back up just a little bit. You called them their foster parents, and I guess technically that's what they were. But in the Hanai tradition, it was so much more than that. That's what the missionaries did. They were introduced to the word Hanai. They were introduced to the concept. They couldn't understand it. They called it adoption. And then they downed it even more and called it foster parents, where the people that were involved looked at each other as family, you know, as as immediate family. I don't know. I just grew this huge heart for the Hawaiians <laughs> during the I research know. of this. And I'm like, I don't want. Right. I have this constant irritation during this whole thing. I'm like, how dare you? 
how dare you? I'm all done of how dare you's by the time that the big one comes. I'm just like, dang. <laughs> well, the king, the king, Kamehameha III, died suddenly at only 41 years old. And he'd been king for 30 years, do that math, and really had brought the country through some radical changes. His tenure pretty well corresponded with the arrival of those missionaries in the first place. Um, he had brought a constitution. He had brought laws, ownership of land. Um, some fundamental changes to traditional life had come during his reign, and it was definitely the end of an era. It was the only king many people could ever remember there being. The new king, Kamehameha IV, we're having a Louis situation. <laughs> Just like in France with the Louis, they're all Kamehameha. That's right. Well, um, number four was a former schoolmate of Lily Ooze. They, they would be, you know, from now on, of course, since that's who was the students of on the roll call list in the first place, right? Dudes in line to be king. So it was a time of great change in the country. The old king had just been on the verge of maybe agreeing to be annexed to America. But the new king had visited there and had got kicked out of a train car because of the color of his skin. The crown prince of a sovereign nation had been told to get out of a train car because he was brown. Yes, he never forgot that. I don't blame him. He should not have forgotten that. He should have gone back and gone, you know, you got to get these people out of here. America can forget it for now. That's a spoiler alert, the for now part. <laughs> well, I am sorry to say that uh, Lily U's papa died right after she graduated from school and his estate was left half to mama and half to sister Bernice. Remember, she was the biological child and she was curiously Lily U left out of inheritance. I don't know, maybe that's part of... The deal with Hanai that they are afforded social adoption, but not financial adoption. She didn't receive a legacy. I'm kind of yeah. puzzled. Yeah, I thought I think that's a kind of a tradition that went through her whole life. It's like she's almost going to get something and then it doesn't happen. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, there was a time when she was supposed to be Papa's sole heir because Bernice um, had married a white husband, which had caused great consternation at the time, mind you. And um, her Papa said, if you marry this Howley, well, we need to talk about Howley in a minute, um, Papa said she'd be disinherited. That was not cool. That was not going to happen. And he did disinherit her for a while, but evidently they'd made up by the time yeah. he died. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the word Howley, which I don't know that I should say too many more times. It started out as meaning, uh, it was a descriptor that meant foreigner, any foreigner, didn't matter. Um, the theory is that that word started out meaning no breath, like native Hawaiians greeted each other by rubbing noses. And of course, foreigners aren't going to do that. That's not their tradition. And so Howley may mean no breath, disputed. What it does mean now is a bad word. Um, it's like calling someone a mudblood. That's the nicest thing I can say. Or to use a real life example, it might even be serious enough to compare it to the N word in intent. So um, although it was used relatively innocently at the time that Liliu was operating um, to mean white person, I'm probably not going to say it anymore because it, it it's got some overtones of really bad intent now, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. I didn't even use it anywhere. <laughs> well, so as to marrying white people, the king himself had decided to buck tradition, had decided to marry his childhood sweetheart, who had a British father and a noble Hawaiian mother. 
So that door has opened anyway. Um, the nobles sort of freaked out at his decision. They put forward the thought that our Lilihu, who was in fact the highest ranking single woman left that was full-blooded Hawaiian, should have been his choice. It was his duty to marry her instead. You know, poppycock, said the king. <laughs> Maybe literally, because things were getting pretty British around here. <laughs> and then the Mauna Loa volcano erupted. And he postponed the wedding. You know what? People nagging you, that's one thing. But Pele, the goddess of fire's disapproval, that's a whole other thing. You know, he had to reflect. (laughs) Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Well, love won out in the end, I guess. Love or uh, skepticism. I don't know which. And Emma Rook became the new queen of Hawaii. Um, No grudges, though, because Lily, who became an important member of the court, kind of a lady-in-waiting, if we're going to use that term, to the new queen. She was kind of swept up into this almost European social season. Balls, dinners, distinguished foreign visitors, and she recalled it later as the happiest period of her life. To outsiders, she was known by her maiden name um, as Miss Packy. <laughs> she goes by a lot of names. Actually, a lot of these people did. And so that was one of the most confusing things I encountered was Someone's name changed in the middle of a book or I was going through two books and they had different names in both of them. They had the same name, just people called them different things. It was very confusing to me. Yeah, I know. I know. Miss Pocky was very impressive with her proper Victorianness. Her accent is great. Her manners hidden here, sadly, not even hidden. On the surface here is their surprise that these savages were so civilized, you know, almost like real people. Literally, a quote, this is no longer a nation of barbarians any more than of cannibals. You can hardly be any more prepared than we were to find them as advanced as they really are. Gross, really. Yeah. (laughs) This whole culture was being subverted, but the king and queen were not sad about it at all. They embraced British ways to the fullest. It was their choice. It was their choice. They had been raised to Western standards by their schooling. I think that was kind of inevitable, really. Yeah. Well, one day, Lily Oo and the court were riding along on one of their journeys, and what to her wondering eyes should appear but an old classmate named John Dominus, a white man who was now working as a secretary to the king's brother. There were some sparks, I gather, until some fool lost control of his own horse and caused an accident. And in all the chaos, John was thrown from his horse and badly injured. But he insisted on seeing Lily Oo home before he got medical attention for himself. How is that for a reverse Mr. Darcy moment? (laughs) Turns out he had broken his leg. (laughs) Chivalry, man. Chivalry. So we're going to catch up with him later. But that is going to stay with the girl. (laughs) Liliu was engaged for a while to Luna Lilo. He was a member of the nobility. He was called Whiskey Bill. Mm, That's (laughs) not a good sign. Uh, Liliu engaged, worked with Queen Emma on various charities, mostly to do with organizing a hospital, which is still there. It's in a different location, but is still working. It is a major teaching hospital in Honolulu to this modern day. But Mr. William Whiskey Bill, her betrothed, was kind of rackety, undependable, a big drinker. He was weirdly not our kind dear for a man with royal blood. I'm just like, huh. (laughs) 
<laughs> the royal school didn't stick to him as well as it did to some people. I guess. But since Mama had died, the head of her family, or at least the head of her life, was her brother-in-law, um, the white man that her sister had married, Mr. Bishop. And he thought, Mr. Bishop, that a much better match would be, drum roll please, John Dominus, he of the broken leg. His family had ties to banking and sugar, and my, isn't that a useful connection? And how shall I put this? Lily, who was in no way unwilling to make the switch. <laughs> no, not at all. So I'm glad. I am glad she was happy to make the switch. I am not sure it was a love match exactly, um, but everyone felt like a winner. So I guess for this time period, that's all you can expect. They were engaged for two whole years. Does that seem excessive to you? How long were you engaged? Uh, a, less than a year. I mean, I was so much less than a year. I have no fathoming on a two-year engagement. And and the king and queen's little son died just before Lilliou's wedding. So it kind of became a lower-key affair than it might have been, given her relatives and her position. Um, You know, the highest-ranking single woman in the country had a very, very small wedding uh, out of respect. The little four-year-old. I'm sad that he was oh, four. That is a bad age. I mean, they're all bad ages before... To lose him, he was named Albert after Queen Victoria's husband. Actually had Queen Victoria as a godmother. I mean, these are Anglophiles. <laughs> and I, he died. His father was kind of connected with his death in a way. He died of what they called brain fever, which could have been meningitis probably. Although the king, his father, thought it was his fault because he had punished the child by putting his head under a faucet. That kind of guilt. I don't know. Well, under all of that cloud, Lilia and John were married. And she was now, of course, Mrs. Dominus or Lydia Dominus. Though I think I'm going to still call her Lilia. Yes. Mm -hmm. I never called her Lydia. So Lilia went to live in John's house. This house was enormous. It was beautiful. And it had been built by John's former sea captain turned import exporter father, who was extremely wealthy. And soon after the house was built, the father died in a shipping accident. So it was just John and his mother. That's it in the house up to this point. So it's not that she's moving into a bachelor pad. She's moving into her mother-in-law's house. And her mother-in-law was extremely racist. She was one of those people you were talking about. She couldn't believe that her son had married this woman with skin that color, let alone that she was living in her own house. Well, dear mother-in-law kept the master suite by the way, and made sure that Lily U knew that she was an unwelcome usurper, unincluded. And I'm very sorry to say that John didn't really stand up for his wife. I, Lily U wrote later, he was definitely an only child. <laughs> like oh, yeah. A nice way to say it. Um, I kept seeing like all the like mom and Lily U kind of spatting and him like backing out of the room because he's like not going to get involved. And it was about things like cultural things like Lily U went out to the garden to cut some roses and the Hawaiian culture. Roses were cut and used and put in houses and, you know, then they were replaced by the new roses. Well, Mama D, that wasn't how they did it in her culture. You left the roses on the bush until they died. And there was this big, you know, blow up about these roses that Lilliu had cut. So that's the level of pickiness that we're talking here. You know what, though? I wonder if it's a hard thing. I think it probably is to see your place taken by an intruder. Like, even if you like them, I say as the mother of an only son, I... <laughs> 
I say jokingly to him, please pick someone nice so I can still be your friend when you're a grown up man. Like, it's (laughs) hard. I'm sure it's hard. I hope my situation goes better than either mother in law or Lily Ooze's situation. (laughs) Well, only a year later, King Kamehameha IV died of grief. Some said a broken heart, um, guilt over the death of his little son and his brother, who had been known as Lot. Now, that is a biblical name you do not see a lot. He became the new king. Um, Any guesses as to what his regnal name is? Yes, it is Kamehameha V. (laughs) It's a dynasty. You got to take the name, right? I guess so. Well, the new king was not a fan of Britain in general and white people in particular. Now he looked back at his predecessor and Kamehameha III had generously opened up lands for private ownership. And I think the intent was that the common people who had worked the land would have the opportunity to buy the land and become property owners and citizens. And Native Hawaiians had no experience with such a thing, buying land foreign to them. And so all of this available land had been snapped up by foreigners, sugar planters in particular. Um, He who has the money has the power, seems like even now. And this king, five, was seeing way too much erosion of this power away from the Hawaiians and towards these newcomers. It was a red flag. And he enacted a new constitution to get things back in balance. And he was definitely more traditional in appearance, in behavior, and in outlook. Um, He was more a king of the old school. I want to say even like back to Kamehameha the first, maybe the second, you know, back before the missionaries had come was where his sentiments lay. And he hired a historian, a literal historian, to begin gathering facts and stories about Hawaiian traditions. You know, Most of Hawaii's history was just spoken word, not written down at all. And it was his initiative to get that put in a book. Well, put in a lot of books. And Liliu worked with this man, this historian, and in the process learned a lot about her own history that had really been suppressed in her own education. She also took classes like at a college. She took college level classes, poetry and literature, Greek, Latin, French. Uh, all the t- all the while, she was extremely musical. She was writing music for her whole life. She just sounds like such an all around educated and cultured woman. Now, the king not only recognized her talents as an educated woman, she was probably literally the most educated woman this side of New England, especially after those college level classes. Well, the king came to her with a request. Um, we cannot keep using this anthem, God Save the Queen. I know my predecessor, Kamehameha IV, loved Britain and loved to play God Save the Queen, but that's inappropriate. We need our own anthem, and I want you to write it. And so she did. She wrote the anthem that was used for 20 years in Hawaii, Hemele Lahui Hawaii, and part of it is, Grant your peace throughout the land, over these sunny isles. Keep the nation's life, O Lord, and upon our sovereign smile. It, of course, rhymes in Hawaiian. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was a quite an honor for her to be given that task. And did you know, I did not know she was a composer. More on that later, but that blew me away. Yeah, I was kind of, that kind of surprised me too. There's a lot of things that surprised me about her, but yeah, that was one of them, definitely. The king had promoted John to be the governor of Oahu. So Liliu was, um, she was a political wife too. So she's so connected with the politics of this country and the heritage of it. 
she was doing what she learned at the royal school. She was still walking that line between the two cultures. And I am sorry to say, yes, she, as the wife of the governor of Oahu, did appear as his wife at official events, but that largely they began to live separate lives. At this point, I'm sorry to say that John Dominus began to be unfaithful almost immediately after their marriage. Not good. Well, she inherited a couple of houses from her grandpa. So she is out from under her mother-in-law at last. And she lived in a house in Waikiki and remembers dancing through the living room, saying the words, my own, my own, my own house, my own house, like over and over and over and over and over like a crazy person. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, she had never had her own house. She lived with her parents. And then when they died, she was still living in that same house, but it had been given to her sister. So she was living with them. And then she went right from that to mother-in-law's house. So yeah, I would have danced around too, wouldn't you? I guess so. So here she is, friend of the king, society denizen, a talented composer, and unhappy wife. Don't forget, it's not all glorious, but this is how almost 10 years just flew by. 10 years of pretty near contentment. It's not joyous, but it is very satisfying, her existence. And then... King Kamehameha V fell ill. He was dying without a wife, without children, without a brother, without an heir. Mr. Dominus, his old advisor and friend, really put the pressure on him to name a successor before he died. And the king, on his deathbed, did ask Liliu's sister, the last remaining direct descendant of the first Kamehameha. In fact, she was of higher rank than Liliu. She was asked to rule after him. And she said, no, no one really knows why Um, she was in a good position to do it, but maybe she didn't want the stress of it. Maybe she just thought she could serve her people better outside of politics. Maybe, you know, there's any reason, but she flat out said, no, I don't think so. She was married to a white man. Maybe there was a conflict of interest, Um, Mm. you know, working for the Hawaiian people didn't equal. I can't do that sign in words, just I'm doing it in the air like that, (laughs) you know, helping her husband's business interests. I don't know, but whatever reason it is, she declined and King Kamehameha V died without an heir. This is probably a good time to take a break. When we come back, we'll find out who steps up to the plate. We are back. King Kamehameha V has just died without an heir. What are we going to do? Well, the nearest male relative was old Whiskey Bill. Remember him? <laughs> Lily Oo's former fiance, the man thought too unreliable to even be a husband. So this bodes well. He was charming, though. People sure liked him. He 
started to negotiate with the Americans to give them access to the mouth of the Pearl River, which the Americans wanted to use as a harbor for their warships. And he actually thought that to improve the economic conditions in his country, to get a deal, like a a better price on the sugar exports, he could trade that for the territory around the Pearl River. And Native Hawaiians were objecting, like, you cannot be giving land to foreigners. You can't give up our sovereignty over this land. And it was a big stumbling block. And so given the slightest bit of objection, he just kind of gave up and went back to his bottle. And it was sort of the only thing he really did because he died less than a year later. A very, very short reign. Now, he also didn't have a successor. The cabinet kind of convened as soon as he died there was going to have to be an election held. And the only people that are voting for this are the people in the legislature. It's not like a countrywide election. Well, I mean, technically, Whiskey Bill was elected too, but he was nearly unanimous. I mean, he was the next male relative. It was pretty easy. He's in the same dynastic family. Now you got to look around, though, because that dynasty is done. There's no more male relatives in that line at all. So you're going to have to reframe your thought process here. (laughs) So there are two candidates, two main candidates, backed by two foreign powers. Britain wanted Queen Emma. Queen Emma, Emma Rook, the half-British woman who had married King Kamehameha IV. Of course they did. I mean, she was already reading the Telegraph. She was already speaking in a British accent. You know what I mean? <laughs> She's on their side. Um, Completely. America wanted Lily Ooze's blood brother, David, David Kalakaua. Hmm. America also wanted cheap sugar, and they really wanted a place to park their warships in the Pearl River Basin like the previous king had offered before he died. Well, it's bad when world powers are fighting for you. <laughs> it, sounds, you. It, it sounds like it's going to be nice. So it's nice to be fought over. But in this particular situation, it was so bad. Supporters on both sides kind of got extremely heated. And there were actual riots. It, remember, not everybody's voting here, but there were riots of their supporters, which basically, you know, came down to race riots. Um, you know, if, if Emma had been elected, she would have kind of continued the Kamehameha dynasty because she was married into it. Right. Um, David was a whole nother family. You know, it's a whole nother line. The Hawaiians were supporting her and people that had economic interests were supporting David. It, woo, high feelings were all over this island. It got so contentious and ugly that both British and American warships parked offshore in case the fighting started for realsies. <laughs> they had soldiers inside these boats, like ready to come ashore. Like the stuff was all packed. Well, the vote, there were 45 voters and the vote went 39 to six in favor of David Kalakawa. And uh, there was rioting and burning and threats made to the life of the new king and the American troops were deployed to enforce peace. After that, The British ships sent people and, of course, the native islanders who had wanted Queen Emma thought, oh, ho, now we're going to see a battle. And the British people are more like, no, no, we're not here for that. We're just here to calm everybody down. (laughs) So they were really disappointed. It wasn't good. (laughs) 
Well, this is not a good beginning to a new reign, for sure. Um, I would like to leave King David with his questionable foreign advisors and friends, all the businessmen, for a moment. It was a land of opportunists. <laughs> Here's what Hawaii looked like right now. There are rich foreigners who own almost everything. There are poor, I mean, desperately poor, imported workers and then the Hawaiians squeezed in the middle, just like the poor old land itself, which was being turned into sort of like strips of sugarcane. The king was kind of astonished that people did not think his advisors were awesome. And he was kind of mad about the non-support of his people. And he wrote, you need not preach to me of history and the value of truthfulness and so forth. I know enough of history and of human nature to discriminate who are honest and who are not. You know what? If you say so, Chachi, because Mm, I don't know. Your future actions are not going to say that you're a very good judge of character at all. <laughs> nope, nope. Here's some happy news. Lily Ooze and David's little sister, whose Hawaiian name was Like Like, but was referred to as Miriam, had a little daughter named Kaiulani. Yay! It was her best friend, this sister, uh, her person, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, the person to whom she told her troubles. Um, you know, they were best friends. But with her own marital situation, Liliu didn't really have any opportunity to have children. It's probably not on the cards. She adopted a little girl of her own who she named Lydia Lilikoai, who was the biological daughter of one of her husband's office workers. And the mother of this little child had died in childbirth. And I will say... She did this over the objections. I don't know why they objected, but over the objections of both the king and her own husband. So she did this independently without any male approval. Good for her. Yeah. <gasps> I know. She wanted to be a mother and now she was. And during this time of her brother's early reign, she wrote maybe the only Hawaiian song most of us know, Aloha Oi. She had been on a horseback riding trip and she looked over and she saw a couple lovers, um, you know, hugging goodbye. And she was inspired to write this song that Elvis sings it now. You know, I have to say, even your small children will probably know it. Um, it's been in SpongeBob in instrumental form quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I can tell you. And um, it's in the movie Lilo and Stitch very briefly. It's just like the only... I mean, it was in Bugs Bunny cartoons. It stands for like shorthand for Hawaii. If that song is playing, you know where you're supposed to be, you know? Right, yeah. You hear that string. What instrument is that? So I think get... it's the ukulele. Oh, is it? Okay. You hear it. Yeah. Okay. One of the phrases is one fond embrace ere I depart until we meet again. So it's a nice little fond, nostalgic song. It's good. It blew me away that she wrote that. That was like, <laughs> I actually said, what? <laughs> I, know. I know. Like I'm like, I know that song. Wow. And then I went on YouTube and like brought up all these different versions of it because it was fun. You don't know too much about Hawaii, really. I mean, you know about pineapples maybe and Queen Liliuokalani vaguely and you know about Aloha Oi and the ukulele and like three out of the four of those things have come together in this one factoid. <laughs> it's good. It was good. It was nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. Their little brother, Lele Ohoku, he was supposed to be the heir. He died. And King David made his oldest sister his heir apparent. He renamed her Liliuokalani, which means Liliu of the Heavens, which Liliu said, 
(laughs) She objected. She's like, that is no name at all. That is nothing. I don't like that. And he said, well, it's more dignified. And I can only like maybe Katie versus Catherine. You're not Miss Katie anymore. You are Princess Catherine. You know, so it was that kind of dignified lengthening of her name, I guess. But they were having this discussion and it just sounds so much like a brother and sister squabbling because he reminded her that her real name means sore eyes. And she said, well, yours means battle day. Yeah, it's just like, and he's like, so if you don't take that long name, I'm going to find another heir. Then is that really what you want to hang your hat on? This name. And so, of course, she's like, okay, fine. fine. I will be Princess Lilio Kalani over my better judgment. So just so you know, she never liked the name. So get this. King David decided out of where? What is his thought process? He decided he was going to circumnavigate the globe. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, no other monarch had done it. So let me just get on this boat and leave you. I'm going to be gone for a few months. So here's what's going to happen. You'll be regent to the country, but I'm going to have this committee of advisors that has to sign off on everything you do. And Lily Ooh was like, F that. You know, maybe literally, honestly, because here's what she said. This is what she actually said in her autobiography. I objected in terms too plain to admit of the least misunderstanding, which sounds to me like she said F that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, maybe she had her pinky out while she said it. But um, no advisors, no cockamamie white friends, these business people, and no foreigners, just me. Or... Don't hit the highway. How about that? Well, he really wanted to go. So what could he do? It's like you have to pay the babysitter whatever she wants when you have tickets to this thing and you got to go and she knows it, you know? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so he agreed to leave her in charge by herself and he took off. I thought that this was medium curious, actually, because he was married. There was a queen, Queen Kapi Olani, um, mm-hmm. and they were friendly and everything. And maybe it was, I don't know, that... Lily Ooh was blood relative, like royal, maybe recognizing her education, actually. She was also the next in line. So if anything happened to him, she would already be in the job. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Henry VIII left and he left Queen Catherine in charge. Um, Queen Eleanor was left in charge as her husband went and did other things. I mean, more legitimate things in both cases, but um, no thought of leaving the queen in charge. He left his sister. So you're right. She's the heir. I guess that makes sense. But it's like a little uh, internship. <laughs> well, at 42, Lily Ooh became the regent of the nation of Hawaii. And of course, immediately there was a crisis, um, not political, like you'd think, but a smallpox epidemic that struck Native Hawaiians disproportionately again. And she quickly enacted a travel ban and a quarantine and the staffing of a smallpox hospital. And the Americans on the premises wrote back to the king that Liliu was popular and revered and well thought of because of her prudent action. True. But the the sugar plantation owners were a little getting a little upset because it was hitting their wallets. The reason the, the smallpox came in was because of workers that they were importing from China. So They were bringing this disease and she stopped the flow of people to work on their plantations. So, yeah, she was awesome. She was doing the right thing. But there was still his buddies. I thought of them kind of like his frat brothers almost because they worked really or meshed all together. 
fiscally and with policy. So yes, this is that I guess it's I'm saying it kind of put her up on a bigger pedestal because she was having some opposition to something that seemed so natural to her. Close the borders. No problem. Stop the epidemic. Well, and then people were saying, um, well, the smallpox keeps breaking out everywhere. And she really named those sugar plantation owners as the people at fault for the breakouts. She's like, you're the one evading the quarantine. So Mm -hmm. you're the one circumventing my regulations. And so therefore, you're the one responsible for this increase in smallpox. So don't put it on me. She was holding firm. She wasn't letting them talk her around or be bullied. And I think her brother was just so amiable toward these people that they kind of got the idea that they could do whatever they wanted. And she was calling them on it. And nobody likes that. And especially not these men. No. Didn't like that. So there's a little seed for the future. Now there's (laughs) another crisis. Another crisis. Oh my gosh. Again, not political. Mauna Loa volcano was erupting again. And the city of Hilo was in danger. She was actually sent for to come pray with the residents, I'm assuming, to the Christian god. And one of the members of the royal party, another princess named Princess Ruth, marched out to the lava and threw red handkerchiefs and liquor on the lava as an offering to Pele. It had been spewing lava for about six months. So Lilia realized things were going to happen. So she got in. She organized construction of dams and ditches that diverted the lava flow. Well... One god or the other one, or engineering. Hooray! (laughs) Hila was saved! Did you see any pictures of Princess Ruth? I didn't. She's a formidable figure. She's very tall and heavy set, and I would not cross her. I think if I was lava flowing, if she threw some liquor at me, I'd stop. (laughs) You know what's so weird about lava? Like, uh, Mauna Loa is dormant, but Kilauea is still erupting. And and I camped on an active volcano, which is pretty macho of me, really. But um, (laughs) you don't even mow your lawn. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's kind of weird how safe it is to stand right by an active lava flow. I mean, I don't mean it's safe. Like if the lava touches you, you'll be dead, but it's not going to chase you. At least these volcanoes in this time and in my modern time when I camped on the volcano aren't chasing you. So you have time to build the ditches and divert it. You know, like mm-hmm. it's the strangest. I mean, it'll eat your housing development. Don't get me wrong, but it'll take it a little bit. Hmm. I have not ever been to Hawaii. So, well, yeah, there's actually um, a man that was living in the middle of not Mauna Loa again. This is Kilauea, but he was living in the middle of this housing development that had been gradually subsumed by a lava flow to the point where people would come as tourists by helicopter because it was surrounded by lava. And eventually, very recently, he had to be evacuated um, hmm. because it was going to eat his house. That's that's not good. And, and it will flare up. That's the thing. You can't be secure. Like, you can't just sit there and be like, it'll never get me. So you're taking a risk, but it's just so strange that you can stand right by glowing. I don't know. I just yeah. I, I, I find that very interesting because I just I think of it like a wave and I guess it's not. It's slow. Well, where I was, it was slow. And then where they were, it I mean, it was moving and you could see it move and therefore you knew where to build the ditches and everything. So it was mm-hmm. a little faster of a, of a flow. But I, it, well, also the people at Volcanoes National Park have a sick sense of humor because in a glass case is a burnt up racked piece of wood about a foot long with a nicely printed engraved label that says... 
This is all that remains of the last visitor center after the last violent eruption. And you're like, <laughs> really? Because I'm standing in the new one and this is in a glass case. I'm like, you're sick. <laughs> so don't get yeah. too complacent. I mean, no. that's what I'm saying. So there's another triumph for the regent, Lily Ooh. And meanwhile, you've got letters from the king off on his around the world tour. San Francisco is so vibrant. I love it here. The pyramids in Cairo are amazing. These kings and their engineering. You know what? We're dealing with our own engineering around here. I got <laughs> such a good deal on pearls. You don't even know. He met Queen Victoria and he's buying pearls and Vienna's marvelous. Vienna rocks. Also, you will never believe this. Queen Victoria lent me a carriage. I saw the opera. He was at the first state dinner at the White House. She's there on the ground doing the work. And her brother is like sending back these letters to her that are just, you know, his travel logs. And, and she is stopping a lava flow. Rumors and, in fact, newspaper stories and political cartoons were following the king around the world, accusing him of traveling to sell his kingdom to the highest bidder. Hmm. Nonsense. Whatever, he said. And the United States openly openly sort of called dibs on Hawaii by saying, look, you, if anyone buys these islands from him, there's going to be a world of hurt. <laughs> not in so many words, but like people were warned off buying the island. He's not even selling them. But America it, is awfully grabby. Yeah. So early in the game. Yeah. Well, they're just assuming the clothes, right? Isn't that a thing in sales? I guess. You just assume you're going to get it at the end. You just need to find the path to get there. Now, she had those two big crises with her country, but then she kind of had a personal crisis while he was gone. She was riding in her carriage and it flipped off the road. But she didn't break her back, but she had to be carried by stretcher back to Washington Place where she was living and uh, <laughs> was laid out in bed for, what, two months? Mm -hmm. Just in so much pain. The irony was the day of her accident was the same day that President Garfield was shot. <laughs> it is not a good day for world leaders. <laughs> no, it was, it was really, really a bad day. So almost a year after he left on his little world tour, her brother comes back and he gets pomp and circumstance. And he wants to go back to his spendy, in bed with the white people kind of ways. But Liliu had been leading the country and actually doing work. For her people. He didn't come back to the woman he had left. That is for sure. Well, King David sort of immediately began being the focus of criticism. Now, this is reminiscent, although more justified, of the charges that were leveled at Marie Antoinette. I am really seeing a parallel here, actually. Uh, an extravagant coronation, almost unbelievably expensive. Thousands spent on sending noble children to be educated and $50,000, which is to say $1.65 million today to build the Iolani Palace, which I think means hawk, uh, like a bird. Uh, anyway, the Iolani Palace is still there. The palace had running water. I mean, indoor toilets, electric lights years before the White House ever had them. The king was in deep financial straits almost immediately. He was in debt to some of his, quote, friends. You know they're not his friends. He was in debt to some sugar barons. He um, had mortgaged some things. There was just giant trouble in River City. But Liliu had been excluded from knowledge or responsibility for such things at all now that the king was back. She was back to society woman status. You know, um, her favorite charity took most of her time. The Lilio Kalani Educational Society for the Education of Girls. 
Um, that's where she spent her time. People would come to her with troubles or requests and she'd have to send them on their way. And she wrote, I have as much to do with governing as the man in the moon does. If modern journalists had been around at the time, I don't think the king would have been in his throne for very long. The sugar planters are treating workers nearly like slaves. More and more workers from China, from the Philippines, from Japan, which is good for the food there now. I'd say. But bad for the men, nearly all men, who had to work in these brutal conditions. There's just no respect for the earth, for wildlife. People brought mongooses in to kill the rats that were menacing the sugar fields. 72, are they mongoose or mongooses? I don't even know. Mongai? No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to say mongooses. How about that? So okay. there, there were 72 mongooses introduced to Hawaii in 1883 to kill the rats, not understanding the fundamental issue that rats are nocturnal. Mongooses sleep at night. Do we see a problem? Yes. <laughs> the mongooses had no interest in the rats. They ate up all the birds uh, and mm -hmm. they bred like rabbits, which is not good. So there's a serious mongoose problem. It's killing the wildlife. Eh, you know. So the sugar barons are also at fault for making several species of birds, of sacred birds, uh, extinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know the thing about this, all the sugar, this powerful commodity for Hawaii, it isn't even a indigenous plant to Hawaii. It was brought in when the people were first starting to come. It's indigenous to modern day Indonesia. And it was brought in and planted and it thrived. You know, that's how it started in this country. And you think sugar Hawaii, but nope. It's like palm trees in Florida. They didn't grow there naturally. And weirdly, most of this white population, some of them did grow up there, but most of them didn't. Hawaii was being colonized from the inside like an alien, right? Like the Sigourney Weaver alien movie, like mm -hmm. the monsters inside of here. And it is just waiting to get big enough to get out. I, it is not apparent, I guess, what menace is percolating with these sugar barons mm -hmm. and the white businessmen associated with the money being produced with all of this. It's so crazy. Okay. Personal catastrophe, sort of number two. Okay. Lily, uh, Lily's <laughs> husband had a child with one of her own servants. Ouch. But surprise level low. It was humiliating, though. I mean, that's not good. She went ahead and adopted the little boy named John Dominus Imoku and then another boy. So she was mother to three children now, though she had not had children with her husband at all. And, and, and quite honestly, did they sleep in the same bed at very much? In the same <laughs> house? No. In the know. same city? No. <laughs> not exactly. So I, that's kind of remarkable. You know, she wanted to be a mom. So she was a mom. I kind of love her so much. <laughs> I do, too. She she kind of rolls with the punches. Um, she deals with the cards she's been given, I guess, at every opportunity. But um, within the span of about two years, the extended royal family began to drop, kind of like flies. First sister, Bernice, then Queen Emma, and then Lily Ooh's younger sister, Lique Lique, Miriam. The first one was bad. That was not good. That was the friend of her youth. The second one? Might have even been a relief because Queen Emma, after the failed election, was never really the same toward her, but not Miriam. Um, Miriam was bad. Miriam was a blow. 
Lily was broken. Broken. She went into such a deep depression that her brother the king was actually looking around for something to cheer her up or to like bring her out of it. And he stepped forward with an amazing invitation. I just imagine him like going, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I got to cheer her up. And looking in a basket and seeing this invitation to Queen Victoria's Jubilee. That's big. That is big. Sure. So he says, I'm going to send you to this. You can bring this letter of uh, greeting and congratulation to the queen yourself. And now Lilial had actually traveled to the United States before. She had, it's not like she'd spent her entire life in Hawaii. She was about 50 at this time. Liliu and Queen Kapiolani and John, her husband, were sent to England for Victoria's Jubilee celebration. Now, Queen Kapiolani had not gone to the royal school. Her English wasn't very good. So Liliu did what she had always been doing. And she was kind of the face for the group. She was a voice. She was a translator. And Victoria treated them like the royalty that they were. Fortunately, other people didn't because all they could see was the dark skin and they were met with more racism in England while they were there as dignitaries. So they did have an audience with Queen Victoria herself and were introduced to the royal family. She, the queen, was given precedence over Liliu. We're familiar with British precedents. We've all seen Downton Abbey. Um, so everywhere the queen was the thing. The queen of the Sandwich Islands, as the British called her. And Liliu was a princess. And so there was a little bit of a cultural problem because back in Hawaii, Liliu had the better blood and was an equal to the queen, right? But not in England. And that had to be ironed out a little bit. And in fact, John Dominus, her husband, had no title at all. And sometimes... He didn't even get to sit at the same table with them because he's a commoner. He didn't get to ride in the carriage because he's a commoner. So a little bit of that etiquette had to be straightened out. There were some <laughs> Lily who got a little shirty for a little while until <laughs> that worked out. There was one point where they were in this room and because Queen Capiolani was the highest ranking person in the room, everybody had to wait until she sat to sit, right? Because she's a queen and she didn't know. So... Uh, Lily, you had to explain this all to her, to her. It's what had to be done. So she did it. So the ladies sat near Queen Victoria in Westminster Abbey for the Jubilee celebration. This is 50 years on the throne. She had just emerged from a very long morning. She had disappeared, if you recall, from her episode from public life for quite a long time. So the country was very, very glad to see their queen again. So um, it was kind of nice to be part of this joy. Quite amazing. Well, event after event after event they got to go to until some news, some alarming news came from home. There was some sort of turbulence in Hawaii. Vague details at first came to them. A secret organization called the Hawaiian League, um, mostly white. Certainly the leaders are white, including Sanford Dole. Yes, Dole. He's in the Dole Pineapple family, but it's not him. No, I know. When I first read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to give up my Dole whips. <laughs> yeah. But then I realized that was a distant cousin, so I was good. This league, mostly made up of white men, numbering in the thousands, had presented the king with a list of demands. I want you to keep in mind that some, yes, like Dole, did grow up in Hawaii, but most of these people were foreign businessmen or speculators. And they basically demanded that King David has to become a figurehead, a constitutional model monarch and not an absolute ruler anymore. And he was really forced to sign this thing. The Hawaiian League had a little army that they had brought up and they made the king sign this and sign away 
most of his power and give it all to these people who were for all intents and purposes, you know, immigrants. And it was called the Bayonet Constitution because there was guns involved. You can question whether the document was legal. In fact, when questioned, the perpetrators of this event said, well, unquestionably, the document was not in accordance with the law. Neither was the Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. Both documents were revolutionary, which had to be forcibly affected and forcibly maintained. You know, that takes some neck. That's a brass neck, as my grandma would say, but it did not bode well for Native Hawaiians, really. Especially thousands of residents of Chinese extraction could no longer vote. The only people that could vote were men of Hawaiian, American, or European ancestry, but they had to meet a certain financial requirement. So the group of people that could vote was very small, and it excluded a lot of Native Hawaiians and, like you just said, a lot of other people who had come to the country. Native Hawaiians objected, as you would. And they complained that, and I quote again, they want to exercise the same power here as they do in their own country. So, yes, the Constitution, I mean, think about what a bayonet is. It's a gun with a knife on the end. <laughs> and so when this Constitution is called the Bayonet Constitution, it doesn't conjure up like delightful visions of committee meetings and, you know, everybody compromising. No. And this is what Liliu came home to. From Queen Victoria's Jubilee, the king's enemies were everywhere. And this group, I am freaking out about this group called the Sons of Hawaii, had emerged and it's a white regiment who marched around or rode around on their horses with lit torches. I'm just saying. I'm just <laughs> I know. saying. I, I'm sure lots of people had an image, a contemporary image just pop into their heads. <laughs> uh, and, and I do believe that is not misplaced mental mm -hmm. gymnastics. Now, I'm not saying that King David was wise. I'm not saying he was powerful. I don't say that at all. He was a little bit naive. Well, he was a lot naive and whatever he did, he did. And he had the wrong friends. But most of these people had no business in the complaining department. They were just taking over a place people already had lived in, which sounds like modus operandi for white people in North America, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It was big sugar who were in control. And most of the sugar stockholders were, in fact, American. And less than 1% of the investors were Native Hawaiian at all. Okay, think about olden time Hawaii, like pre-missionary Hawaii. I think King David would have been a great traditional king back in the day. You know, you've got Hula, you've got loyal family, my will is law. Like, he was called the Merry Monarch, after all. People really liked him personally, but he was no savvy, hard man for the hard times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. He complained, you know, it doesn't feel as good to be a king as it did before the missionaries came. So he agrees with me. <laughs> well, King David went to the United States again, this time at the behest of the sugar barons, who were, in fact, in charge, to negotiate on behalf of his tormentors themselves. Hmm. He, while he was away, died in California of a stroke, uh, complications related to a stroke. And so Lily Ooh, Queen Liliu Kalani was now the monarch. She was 52 years old. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear about Liliu Kalani's reign.
So we are back. Oh, another king has died. Long live Queen Liliuokalani. The sugar barons sort of struck while the iron was hot, though. They took advantage of the shock of the immediate aftermath of the king's death to get the queen to sign an oath promising to uphold the bayonet constitution. Well, she was not falling in line like her brother had. Queen Liliuokalani demanded that her brother's entire white cabinet resign in favor of her own candidates. And the Supreme Court upheld her, believe it or not. Oh, it took him a couple of weeks. But her brother-in-law had some practical, yet very annoyingly mansplainingly advice to give her. He said, the ministries have responsibility and all the annoyances and all the blame. Let them have them all. Don't worry yourself about them. You'll live longer and happier and be more popular by not trying to do too much. Oh, my gosh. It's like, go put on something pretty and smile. Wow. Well, man, this situation was just no good. No good. A group of powerful businessmen were determined to get Hawaii annexed to the United States. They wanted to bolster their sugar prices. Now... Sugar prices had gone down 44% in five years. I mean, that's a legitimate business concern. That is a significant percentage. And a group of Republicans <laughs> wanted no monarchy at all or annexation to the United States to get a better price for sugar. Other men resented what they called a petticoat government. Now, we've heard that before. Mary of England, Eleanor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Elizabeth I, la, 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 play the same old song. Well, the economy and the mood of the country was just in tatters, tatters. Liliu got notice that dark forces were conspiring against her. There was even an assassination plot perhaps being hatched, but most notably, the United States envoy to Hawaii, like an ambassador, a man named John Stevens, who was determined that Hawaii would become part of the United States under his watch. And he was willing to do whatever it took. And he was working with the Queen's enemies. And Liliu decided to take direct action. I mean, what are you going to do? Sit around and wait for it to happen? So she was going to present a new constitution. Well, my predecessor, Kamehameha V, did not need, quote, approval for his constitution, and there were great injustices I see among my people and in this constitution, which my brother only signed under duress. So I am going to rectify them. There are some other aspects of this, but the main ones are that she wanted to name and dismiss advisors in cabinet with no one else's say-so as the monarch. And she wanted to have male citizens all voting. Citizens only. No white interlopers. Asian Hawaiians, yes. Howleys, no. <laughs> I'll use the word again. All right. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm just saying, basically, she just wanted to shift power to the native Hawaiians in Hawaii. Oh, imagine that. Crazy. Yeah, crazy, crazy. So, well, you know, that's never going to be acceptable to the white businessmen. You know, if the natives assert their rights, what would happen to them? <laughs> But we have to make the country safe. We want to pr and protect ourselves, of course. So they formed what they called a committee of safety and were scheming behind the queen's back to depose her. This little club said <laughs> that the queen's attempt at a new constitution was, are you ready for these, tampering and greed and interference. Like, really? It's tampering and great and interference? I would like for you to take that finger that you're pointing and turn it back on yourself. That's right. Dudes, because you are tampering and greed and interference, and you always have been. Well, Lily U was betrayed by her cabinet and by some spies that had 
uh, made their way into her inner circle. And they kind of put a kibosh on the new constitution that she wanted to put out. Um, They at least got her to delay putting it forward. And then the committee of safety, their safety, took Mm -hmm. extreme measures. I mean, they gave fiery speeches to the white population and sort of started rumors that Lili'u and the natives were gearing up to slaughter white people. The queen wants us to sleep on a slumbering volcano, which will some morning spew out blood and destroy us all. Again, that seems like projection. (laughs) It's like the alien is already there and the alien is you, white people. Well, the chaos and unease that followed, fear is a powerful motivator, caused the envoy, John Stevens, to ask that the men from the USS Boston with a Marine unit on board um, that was supposed to, quote, protect American citizens in Hawaii, will you please land your troops and start protecting already? But they sort of took up a weirdly threatening stance. Like, there's no rioting anyplace. They're not quelling an uprising. They're just kind of standing in front of the palace. Like, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it was just like a regular day, and suddenly the palace has all this military force in front of it, ready to what? It's just um, very sus. It is. So the Committee of Safety on the DL convinced Sanford Dole, who is the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in Hawaii, um, that he should be the president of a new government. And at first he's like, "Okay, you know, I see that you people cannot work with Queen Lilia Kalani. What if we get her niece back? She's at boarding school in England. Seems like a nice girl. Has a white father. We could work with her, maybe. Um, can we just get her back and maybe just replace her as queen? And then, of course, the Committee of Safety's like, no more queens. No more queens. <laughs> and I have to say, Dole was actually one of the few born in Hawaii. He was. He was born in Honolulu, unlike many whites involved in this. So he had a little bit more of a legitimate stake than they did. But he was the son of missionaries from Maine and educated in New England for college and came home to work as a lawyer and then a judge. I guess that's the career path that you take yeah. when you're a lawyer. He he had actually said of himself, I am of American blood, but Hawaiian milk. Oh, there you go. But we don't like him, so. <laughs> no, and he said he had one real bad night of examining his conscience. He couldn't sleep at all, you know, but in the morning, he's ready to be the hammer. He sort of regretted it later, but only in private. In public, he was pretty merciless. And on January 7th, 1893, the chairman of the Committee of Safety went up the steps of the official government building and read the committee's declaration that the monarchy was over. Part of the declaration said, Her Majesty proceeded on the last day of the session to arbitrarily abrogate to herself the right to a new constitution, which proposed, among other things, to disenfranchise over one-fourth of the voters and owners of nine-tenths of the private property of the kingdom. So I just want to go over that again. Nine-tenths of the property owners in Hawaii were not Hawaiian. They admit this. Mm -hmm. This was such a quiet revolution that someone had to literally go tell the queen it had even happened. Yeah. That's true. Lily Oo refused to abdicate. She did. But she did a pretty clever thing. She protested against this provisional government and stepped back, quote, I yield my authority until such time as the government of the United States shall, upon the facts being presented to it, undo the action of its representatives and reinstate me in the authority. So she outed Stevens in this document as, you know, Stevens, the 
ambassador as the man who did this. And she refused to acknowledge the authority of the provisional government. And she drew America in on her side instead of the provisional government. Like, I trust America will make the right choice. It was a pretty big gamble, actually. But she basically laid it out like, okay, I am not going to abdicate to you people. I'm going to let America judge if you did the right thing. What she did at this point is she went around and very quickly got support of the Hawaiian people in a petition. 95% of the Native Americans signed this petition that she then took to the president, Grover Cleveland, and said, look, this is going on in my country by your people. So what Cleveland did was send an envoy out to Hawaii to assess the situation. He's like, what's going on out there? So this guy goes out and he talks to both sides. He takes no bribes from anybody. He just listens and talks and asks questions. And when he reports back to the president, he says that Liliu should be given amnesty and she should be put back on the throne because this was wrong on the Americans' part. And his report was so clear on Liliu's side that... Envoy Stevens, who had called the troops off the USS Boston, was relieved of his job. That seems pretty clear. Our guys screwed up is basically what he said. You know, Stevens should never have used the name of the United States to support these usurpers. That was his basic premise. It's like, our flag has been used to do something real bad here. And so America sent apologies and, quote, with her consent and cooperation, we might redress this wrong. And the United States, really all they wanted was they wanted her to promise to grant amnesty to the men of the safety committee and the whole provisional government who were mostly American citizens. So the president was kind of trying to look out for the people of his own country, even though they had done something wrong. And Lily Ooh was like, no, treason means they get their heads cut off and the crown takes their property. And so if you have ever seen a cartoon where somebody's real surprised and their eyeballs pop out, <laughs> like, oh, 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 like three times, you know, there's eyeballs. That is what the Americans look like. Their what's get what off? Like, yeah, beheaded and divested. Do I stutter? She was not... <laughs> I don't know that she was thinking clearly, but she's more like, no, that we don't get to shake hands and meet each other at the market and marry each other's children. They need to get off my island. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so the guy that was supposed to just simply deliver her message of no problem, I grant amnesty, instead sent back a telegram to Washington that said, the views of the first party are so extreme as to require further instructions from you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. This was kind of a misstep on her part because what happened was the whole, everything stalled out. She wasn't exactly put back on the throne. She, they hadn't resolved it. And Grover Cleveland kind of pushed it off his desk and gave it to Congress to vote on. He's like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. I did what I could. And... <laughs> let Congress decide. It didn't so, really matter. Honestly, mm -mm. as far as the provisional government was concerned, here's their viewpoint. How dare the United States interfere in our country's affairs? Is that the richest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> um, and yeah. they dug in. They doubled down. They talked a lot about how they stood up to tyranny like the peasants in the French Revolution. Well, maybe that's the richest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> they took Lily Ooh's lands without paying her for them. And meanwhile, the royalists were preparing to retake their country on their own. They seemed to get the feeling that although America's not going to come help them, that nobody's going to stop them from taking the country back. 
word gets out to the new government that there's a rebellion forming and they search Lily's property and they find some guns. She claims she doesn't know anything about it. They imprisoned her in the palace in a couple rooms in the palace, which was, you know, nicer than any jail cell. But this is the queen of Hawaii who's been dethroned and thrown into jail by these people who took over her lands. On the first night of her imprisonment, she wrote in her Bible that she had been imprisoned for the attempt of the Hawaiian people to regain what had been wrested from them by the children of the missionaries who first brought the word of God to my people. So while she was in the Iolani Palace, she sewed a story quilt which you can actually still see, of her imprisonment, of her reign. Um, I think the words I am imprisoned literally appear in the center of the quilt. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. She was forbidden from reading newspapers. And so her friends started to bring her fresh cut flowers wrapped in newspapers, which completely evaded the notice of the men imprisoning her. I guess flowers were beneath their notice. (laughs) Yeah. That's not even like a... A file in a cake. It's, it's, it's like a file on a cake. <laughs> I know. Like sitting there in plain sight. <laughs> That's right. She spent her time writing songs or at least notating down songs that she had previously done orally. She used her time well and she did have some companions to keep her company. Um, seems to be kind of a common thing when noble women are imprisoned they take friends in with them (laughs) another thing that she did do there is she got very bitter about the presbyterian church that she had been a part of for her whole life i mean she had given them money she had worked on mission projects with them she had led their choirs and played their organs and none of the presbyterians came to visit her while she was in prison none of them an anglican bishop however did and eventually she converted to that church because he you know he was a regular visitor and came and, you know, talked with her. And But wow, this church that she had devoted her life to, and it wasn't even prison. It's not like they had to go to someplace dirty. It's the freaking palace. Well, and you saw by that previous quote that she blames the children of the missionaries who came to her country for mm-hmm. her current situation. And mm-hmm. I don't think she's wrong. Mm-mm. Well, under threat of not only her execution, but that of all of her followers, Lilia Kalani signed a letter of abdication. So that is also a bayonet abdication as far as I'm concerned. Um, And she even had said that she doesn't care so much about her own life, but she couldn't have the blood of everyone who had been loyal to her on her hands. And so she was going to abdicate to prevent that from happening. So she was put on trial, kangaroo court, as Mrs. Dominus. Doesn't this remind you of Marie Antoinette's? Like they called her the Widow Capet. Remember that? Like they didn't even let her become a princess or queen or anything. Right. Right. This is so clearly a railroading by greedy power mongers. I can't even stand it. So she was found guilty of treason, $5,000 fine, five years hard labor, and Dole, Sanford Dole, the the provisional governor, commuted her (laughs) sentence, Uh, you know, not because he was a gracious soul necessarily, but he knew there was going to be worldwide backlash. It's just not, he didn't have a case to do it. And Mrs. Dominus was elevated to house arrest at her old home in Washington Place. And then later, a full pardon from President Dole. Um, Thank you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Great. So Lilu got away, got out of 
the island entirely. She went to visit her husband's relatives in California and then in Boston. Um, she always thought snow was awesome, by the way. So, yeah, several times during her trips, like she went across the Rocky Mountains and witnessed a snowball fight. <laughs> And it was just like, whoa, it's amazing. <laughs> so she liked Boston and she found it very novel to be cold and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's not all horrible. But she called on old President Cleveland, who was on his way out, her supporter, who couldn't help her with Congress anymore. Congress was not leaning her way, by the way. And she took this time to write her autobiography, Hawaii's Story by Her Queen. The press was mocking her. You know, the barbarian queen, her erstwhile majesty, her dusky majesty or whatever. It's like super racist mockery that was happening. And she wanted people to see her as the educated woman that she was. Maybe to just change her image in the public eye in hopes that that would help her people. Well, all the press, all the meetings, all the letters, all the supporters that the queen had just came to nothing. When the United States entered the Spanish-American War and the United States needed a military base in the Pacific. So the takeover that started by sugar and money was completed by war. Well, President Cleveland's successor, President McKinley himself, sent an annexation petition to Congress. So obviously this is not looking good for Hawaii. No, and it passed. So seven years after she had taken the throne, Hawaii was annexed by the United States. The Hawaiian flag was lowered for the last time and the American flag was raised. For the Americans, it was this day of celebration. They were victorious in their quest and for the Hawaiians, it was a day of mourning because their flag was coming down. There's, I heard this story, and I only heard it in one source, so I can't confirm it, that the flag was cut into pieces and handed out as souvenirs for everyone that was there to remember this victorious day. The invitation to the ceremony was sent to Mrs. J.O. Dominus. So she refused, of course. She did not go to the ceremony. Like, how gross to invite her, whatever. Two years later, Hawaii became an official territory of the United States, and Sanford Dole was its first governor. It was over. The monarchy was dead. And Liliu fought for compensation for the seizure of her property. And it took nine years before she began to receive a pension from the United States government. How horrible. <laughs> You, you are going to go over there. We're going to take everything of yours and we're not going to pay you. I mean, she was a, the queen of this country. I can't even. <clears throat> well, not even just her, but from all her people were now second class citizens, mm -hmm. curiosities in their own country. Mm -hmm. <sighs> anyway, I, mm, so Lily Wu was getting older. She began to grow weaker. She first suffered paralysis of her legs. And then definite signs of Alzheimer's, but she was surrounded by loyal supporters and friends who continued to call her Lilio Kalani, even though that name was forbidden. I want to repeat, even though that name was forbidden, she was to be called Lydia Dominus. Yeah, that's, they even took her name. Well, Queen Lilio Kalani, last monarch of Hawaii, died at her house on November 11th. 1917. She was 79 years old. She was given a state funeral. There was rain and thunder, which was seen by the Native Hawaiians as a, a good omen um, to have rain and thunder on your at your funeral. Oh. Um, yeah, she was laid in state for a week and then buried at the Royal Mausoleum. And guess what people sang as her cortege went through the street? Aloha oi. 
Yeah. You are beloved. We will meet again. Yes. It's wow. That was good. That is such a good, I'm sorry. That's such a good funeral song. Well, um, her estate, uh, there were some bequests to individual people, but the vast majority of it, about $5 million in modern money, was given to a trust called the Queen Lilio Kalani Trust, which still, to this day, provides support for orphans and poor children in Hawaii. And I have to say, combined with her sister's legacy, which provides funds for education and schools, I think those are great things to have left to their people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, Lilio Kalani's story has become, I don't know, I guess seen more clearly in recent years, like President Bill Clinton issued an official apology to the Hawaiian people during his presidency. And there is a senator named Daniel Akaka of Hawaii, and he has proposed in various forms over the past two decades a bill similar to Native Alaskans or indigenous tribes in the lower 48 to give recognition and rights to Native Hawaiians. Basically, the right to a separate Native Hawaiian government that can negotiate with the United States for, you know, property rights and concessions. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Long overdue. Long overdue. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah. you know, woo, do I still put sugar on my coffee? I thought it was going to be pineapple <laughs> when I started out that I had to swear off of. I know. Me too. Me too. Um, yeah. I was sort of glad that I'm a diabetic and I can't really have that much sugar. <laughs> so with our boycott of sugar, that brings us to the end of the life of Queen Liliuokalani. And now it's time for media. As usual, we will start with books. You can read Hawaii's story by Hawaii's Queen, her autobiography. It's available online. That's how I read it. So you don't even have to go to your library unless you like an actual book. Nice. Okay. So I have two books that I kind of read in tandem. They were both open to similar locations at the same time. So I've got Captive Paradise, A History of Hawaii by James L. Haley. And then Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure by Julia Flynn Seiler. Those are the same two I had. And they look very similar. Um, And they're about the same size. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, Captive Paradise, which is the history of Hawaii by James Haley, has more of, it looks at, I thought it looked at it more objectively, the situation. And I thought Lost Kingdom kind of looked at it a little pro-American. Did you find that? I came in with a little prejudice at the beginning. So it could have come in with a pro-American slant. I started out thinking, how dare you people just come here and blah, blah, blah. So the book could have been very pro-American, but my brain was not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's funny. So um, you could be right. I, I would uh, welcome an objective observer. You know, reading it, I thought it was the um, best one to read. Like they liked her writing the best. Yeah, like a story. Yes, very, it read very much like a story. And I'm not saying that it was all America good, Hawaiians bad at all. But I just, I don't know. There's like little things. I don't know. You read it. You tell me. Uh, I actually bought a book for this one. Okay. Um, it is The Betrayal of Liliuokalani, The Last Queen of Hawaii, 1838 through 1917, written by Helena G. Allen. Uh, I got it off of Amazon and I got the paperback and it has the tiniest font I have ever seen in a book in my lifetime. <laughs> I had to put like the reader, like I usually wear bifocal readers and um, I had to put like the full screen readers on to be able to read this. Now, is it the book or is it the March of Time? 
<laughs> no, this was definitely the book because I went back and I looked at the reviews and they, uh, some of them were like paperback has really tiny fonts. And oh, I'm like, ah, oh, it wasn't just me. It was very pro hers. I thought it was the only one I found that was solely about her um, in compilations all the time. But yeah, there's mm-hmm. very few books that are devoted to just her. I did come across a, um, interestingly, a school book. Oh, um, it's the Kamehameha Schools. From the Bernice Powahi Bishop Estate, it is a school book called Lilio Kalani. It's um, like a little textbook, and it's probably for fifth grade, I would say, with lots of illustrations and lots of white space. It is definitely for small children. <laughs> it would have been a nice rest for my eyes. <laughs> so this one is um, by Ruby Hasegawa Lo, and you can get it also in a Hawaiian language edition. Oh, I love that. And then you have all the rulers, really. Kamehameha the Great, that would be one. And then all the following Kamehamehas, although two doesn't seem to get his own book. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, so Those are all separate books or those are all included in this? They're all separate books in this series. Oh, in that series. Okay. Just checking. Okay. Um, yeah. All um, produced um, by the estate of Bernice Pauahi Bishop. Awesome. The sister of Queen Liliuokalani. So that's good. And then I have some other biographies because I like to go back and I read biographies of Kamehameha the Great and the founding of Hawaii and the battles and blah, 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 blah. So I'll just put those on the Pinterest. Um, You know, that's for people that want to go a little back into the family tree. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. There is so much online that you can just like... (laughs) I have so many websites. I want to just pick the ones that I like the best. Um, But you can just learn so much about the culture and the the Hawaiian history right from your living room, which is pretty fantastic. The Liliuokalani Trust has a website that actually has a lot of resources on it. That's the one that was founded to benefit orphan and destitute children with Hawaiian ancestry. Um, the lots of things to look at. Uh, the Bishop Museum. This was built by her husband, um, Bernice's husband, Charles, and it is the largest museum in Hawaii. And there's a lot of things you can see online of it. And you could also take a tour through the Iolani Palace. Mm-hmm. Also, there is a website called Chicagoology that has an article about Hawaii's contribution to the world's Columbian Exposition of 1893. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there was a volcano. Woo! And it was um, the volcano of Kilauea that they reenacted between the Chinese theater and the Ferris wheel. Paid for by, of course, the sugar cartel. It was a cyclorama. Cost $80,000 to make this. In our private lounge group, the people should definitely join on Facebook. Somebody had posted some coins. Today that they had gotten from their grandmother. And the woman that posted it has the same name as my neighbor, Ashley Ball. So I thought it was my neighbor. So I went on there and I was like, oh, my gosh, I know so much about this fair. (laughs) And then I realized that it wasn't. And so I deleted it (laughs) because it sounded stupid, like on the lounge conversation. It sounded like I was talking to my teenage neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, WashingtonPlaceFoundation.org has lots of photos and paintings um, of what is now Washington Place was her home is now the governor's mansion. So it's a lovely website. I thought it was beautiful. And there's lots of things to look at on there. So I would definitely go there. If you're interested in the legislation um, that the senator has been proposing that would um, allow 
Native Hawaiians to have their own government. I'll give you a link to the Smithsonian Magazine's article about that. And also I have a um, History of Hawaiian Music website and a guide to Hawaiian pronunciation. And um, it is not their fault. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) On YouTube, there is a C-SPAN talk given by the man that wrote one of those books, James L. Haley. Mm-hmm. And he gives a talk and there's he has a PowerPoint presentation going on behind him. And I thought he was very I, I would love to go see him speak because he's just so relaxed. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I really liked his delivery. I, he said so, he made a comment about having too much wine. So I wondered how much that was involved. <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. So we'll we'll get that on the website for you, too. In June of 2017, a search began for Native Hawaiians to play Liliu in the movie called The Island. It was supposed to have started filming in September of 2017 to be released in November of 2018. There is a website, but it doesn't look like it's... I tried to find it that it's in production, and I can't find anything. So I think it might have uh, failed out. But if it hasn't, and you see it, let me know. I rented a, and I think the documentary um, of Liliu's life, and I don't know what kind of fool I am holding a DVD in my hand when I have no machine in my life that can play a DVD. I can't even play this. And I'm laughing. It's like I was holding an eight track. It was like that much comedy to me. Like there's a media here that is, as far as this house is concerned, is no longer a viable method of communication. Anyway, I wonder if it's the same one I I got because I um, put it in my DVD player that's connected to my television set. <laughs> you old school. I know. Hawaii's last queen. It's an American experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, it. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was good. That's that's the one where I got the story about the um uh, the flag being cut up and the guy who talks about it tears up and I was like getting choked watching it. I was like, oh my gosh! I actually played it again because I was like, oh, this poor man having to talk about that. This story needs to get out. So that brings us to the end of our coverage of Queen Lilio Kalani. I would like to quote from the textbook that children in Hawaii read about Queen Lilio Kalani. Foreign influence began long before she was born and continued throughout the monarchy period and beyond. More than a century after Queen Liliuokalani's overthrow, we are still reminded of the stalwart queen who did what she thought was right and dethroned for her beliefs. Thank you, Queen Liliuokalani, and we will say aloha. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or you can leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, which was formerly known as iTunes. I seriously do not think there is any point in joining our probably unsustainable sugar boycott. So here's something you can join. The History Chicks Podcast Lounge over on Facebook. It's a place for everyone to talk amongst yourselves. Kind of movie recommendations, travel photos, books, recipes, just hanging out. It's pretty great. There is a new visit group button right on our main Facebook page to make it easy to find. Also, you can banter with Susan on Twitter at the History Chicks with an X. And don't forget that I have just added a Pinterest board full of rabbit holes for you to follow over on Pinterest. Not just for Queen Lily Kalani, for every single episode that we have ever done. So many thanks to James Harper, known as Harper Active, for the music today. Visit him at harperactive.blogspot.com. The end song is Passage to Papa Ete by Kahuna Kawensman, courtesy of musicalley.com. 